Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now, let's get wild. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Conservation Unfiltered. This is episode number 14, Meet a Biologist. In today's episode, I interview Janine Flegel. She's a wildlife biologist for the Pennsylvania Game Commission, specifically working in the deer and elk section. I've had the pleasure of meeting Janine a couple times, and she's just an awesome person. Uh, I think just about everyone who enjoys time in the outdoors thinks, man, if I could go back, I'd be a wildlife biologist. Uh, it was great to be able to talk to her and hear about what her job consists of. What does it mean to be a wildlife biologist in my home state of Pennsylvania, working with basically the the animal that everyone sort of thinks of when they think of being outside, and that's deer. So it was very interesting to find out what her you know what got her to this point, and uh, you know what her day to day sort of interaction is as a wildlife biologist. So without further ado, let's get started. Okay, and joining us today is Janine Flegel. She is a wildlife biologist with the Pennsylvania Game Commission's Deer and Elk Section. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Uh, get to talk to you again. It's been a while since uh, I've been able to talk to you. So uh, why don't you uh, sort of catch me up a little bit on some things you've been working on? Uh, okay. So the last time we crossed paths was you came out to uh, try to catch some deer. And unfortunately, that didn't work out for us. Well, I mean, we caught deer with with the project, but you weren't able to witness any of the fun. Um, but since then, that project, which is the Deer Forest uh, Project or the Deer Forest Study, is still continuing on, uh, which entails different um, activities depending on the time of year. So we just completed deer capture uh, a couple months ago. Now, uh, crews are switching to vegetation monitoring, which isn't nearly as exciting, but still very important data. Um, and just general deer stuff in in Pennsylvania. So, yeah, that was uh, Talon came out with me, and, and that was a uh, great experience for both of us. Uh, we it was great for us to be able to ask questions and, and see the process. Unfortunately, like you said, we didn't, we didn't catch any deer. Uh, the, that, and honestly, for the first time in my life, I actually went into the woods to try to catch a deer. So, uh, <laughs> so my wife was finally right. Um, but um, it, was, it was interesting just the way that that, that sort of works out, um, the way that you guys, you know, catch deer in, in, the, in the pens and, and bait them in. Um, where it didn't work out for us this time to be able to come out and and volunteer our time to try to help you wrangle up some deer, but it's definitely something we want to try to do in the future. I feel like that would be a cool experience to be able to put your hands on a live deer. Yeah. It, I mean, really that's, that's kind of the most exciting thing 
with regard to um, when people think of wildlife biology and what that work entails, it's always um, animal capture. And honestly, it's one of the smallest portions of, of the job, um, which is unfortunate because that's what lures most of us into it. And then lo and behold, when we finally get here, so to speak, it's like, oh, you don't do that very much. <laughs> and so it's a little bit disappointing, but, you know, that's all right. The work is still good. Yeah, I feel like that's a lot of jobs. There's always the exciting thing is what pulls people into those fields, but the exciting things tend to be the things that happen the least. There's always, you know, more paperwork than you assume there will be and that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. You know, when um you know, you see things on Animal Planet or or things like that, people interacting with with wildlife like they do on TV, it's never like that in real life. And honestly, um, it's it's good. While animal capture is exciting, it's incredibly stressful, not only to the animal, but to the people involved. Um, I always find when I have the responsibility of an animal in my care, uh, it's it's so stressful. Uh, my job is completely focused on that animal and to get it out as quickly as possible. It's uh, usually I finally have fun when the quote, you know, air quotes of fun when the animal is long gone and uh, out, out, back out into the world. So, so a, a lot of people go into their fields of study and into their careers, you know, where they sort of, they had an aha moment uh, whenever they decided, hey, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So when, how and when did you decide to become a biologist? When did you sort of say to yourself, I think that looks cool. I, I would really like to do that. Uh, that's a great question. And I never thought of it as an aha moment, but it really was. It was for me anyway. Um, I did my undergraduate uh, work at a uh, School, a small school uh, called the University of New England, which is located in Maine. And my senior year, a new professor came on board, Dr. Catherine Ono. I will never forget her as long as I live. Uh, and she came from California. And her class, uh, she taught a marine biology class, uh, marine mammals class specifically, because her focus uh, was stellar sea lions, and she had a stellar sea lion project out in California. They're on the, those sea lions are on the West Coast. Um, and that school was a liberal arts school. We never had any really focused uh, wildlife management classes. It was, you know, liberal arts. You took a, a little bit of everything, even though my, um, my focus was environmental science when I was there. But every... Uh, summer, she would hire a couple of her students to be uh, her field techs for her field work. And I thought, well, why not? So she had three different field sites uh, on the West Coast. Two of them were in Alaska, and one of them was, off, um, was on an island off of California. And I was fortunate enough to be chosen as one of the students to do some of this research, which was behavioral. Um, 
So I spent eight, or excuse me, 10 to 12 hours a day in a blind watching a beach full of sea lions. And I'm like, wow, that sounds great, right? So they, they shipped me off. My island was a little island called Marmot Island off of Kodiak Island in Alaska. And what I got paid for this was per diem. So I, it was completely volunteer. I got my plane ticket out there and my plane ticket back and, you know, per diem uh, for, for six weeks. And this island is uninhabited. It was myself and uh, another tech who was my partner for doing observations because the days in Alaska are really, really long. So we split the shift. And there were two other people from um, NOAA there that were doing other research uh, on a different beach on this island. So there were four of us total on this island, and we lived in this little cabin. Um, and with no communications, the only communication we had was a radio in case there was some sort of emergency. We got, I took my first helicopter ride from Kodiak to this little island, and they dropped us off. They dropped us off. And that was it. And I was all alone, all by myself, with these three other people that I didn't know for the next six weeks. And hiking to the blind from the cabin was about 45 minutes. And the first time we got there was this cabin, or excuse me, this blind was on the side of a cliff. And they set up ropes that I had to shimmy down to get to this little <laughs> blind. And I thought, oh, I had almost a panic attack because it's like, I'm stuck here. I can't get off the island. I'm going to have a complete meltdown with people I don't know. Oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? So after I kind of got over that, and the first time I got down there and I didn't die, um, it was awesome. Well, I say it was awesome until those six weeks were up because the other thing about this island or anywhere in that general area of Alaska, it's incredibly wet. We were there yes. for six, six weeks, and I should have known this because when we got on the island, it was a beautiful sunny day, but everything was covered in moss. I thought, huh. Wow, you know, it's beautiful and sunny, but it rained every day. I think we maybe had five days of sunshine the entire summer I was there. And the day came that we were going to leave and go back to Kodiak, and I couldn't wait. Get me off that island as fast as I can. <laughs> it was awful. And because of the weather, we didn't know if we were going to be able to get out that day, and I'm like, oh, please let me get off this island. So... We finally got back, finally got a real shower and all those things, and I was happy, and I got to, flew home to, I lived in suburbia in, you know, in Massachusetts, and my first night home, I couldn't sleep because it was so loud. Mm. And I said to my mom, I'm like, God, it's so loud here. And she said, what are you talking about? And when I got home, I realized I had made a terrible mistake, that I needed to stay out there in the field, and that's what I wanted to do. So it, it was so, such an extreme experience right off the bat. You know, that was my first real immersion into field work. And, I, and while I was in it, I didn't know it, but when I left it, I loved it. And I'm like, wow, that's 
That's really what I want to do. That's where I want to be. So that was kind of it for me. Um, that, that that's an awesome story. We, uh, my friends and I, we have uh, what we call the fun meter, and uh, <laughs> with our fun meter, it it sort of works backwards of the way that you would think. Uh, you know, ones and twos are sort of like your roller coasters, where you have fun uh, while you're doing it, and it's extremely short, and then you don't really think about that how fun that was later in life. Uh, whereas the the sevens, eights, and all the way up to tens are things that basically suck while you're experiencing uh, that, you know, just like what you experienced in your in, in that story. But you look back at it later and you realize how much fun you had, uh, even though you were you sort of felt miserable at the time. Yes, that is that's absolutely it. I and I think that you know time. It didn't take that much time for me to have that perspective, but certainly when you look back on things, that's what it is. It's like, wow, I got through that. And, you know, looking, if I had the opportunity to do it again, if someone said to me today, hey, you want to go sit on an island that nobody lives on for, you know, six weeks and stare at sea lions? you know, for 12 hours a day, I'd say, sign me up now. Yeah. Where, where do I get on the plane? <laughs> it, it definitely takes a special kind of person to be interested in something like that. Like that, that's something that would interest me uh, as a outdoors person and someone who likes to hunt. Uh, but for someone like my wife, who is very much uh, a city girl, uh, that she would look at, look at anyone who came up with that uh, possible idea and say, you're absolutely out of your mind. <laughs> Uh, oh, for sure. And and it's not like I had this huge um, outdoor background growing up because I didn't. My family wasn't, you know, in the woods all the time and going on nature walks and things. And that, that was not me. I mean, uh, I lived a typical suburban life. We had a small yard. Uh, no one in my family really hunted that much and if they did it wasn't a big part of their lives um now I did have an aunt and uncle that uh loved to camp so they would take me uh during the summer we would camp on the Kangamangas Highway up in the White Mountains and we would hike for the weekend and I would complain as we went up the mountain hiking and down the mountain (laughs) So it's not, again, it's not like I had great memories of, I, I certainly enjoyed my time with them, but this, that experience, that field work experience, I had never encountered before, and, and I had nothing to compare it to either. Um, it was just so outside of my, my world, um, and I think that's, and, and, and really, and that's when you find out whether you want to do this or not, you know, or do anything really is when you immerse yourself in whatever experience that is and, and then see how you feel. So. This is a good time to take a quick break and mention one of our partners, SOS Gear. As you know, SOS Gear is a small business out of Montana who specializes in paracord products. Today, I want to highlight the rifle slings Chelsea makes. These slings are tough. Available in 32 to 48 inch lengths, these slings are made to last. 
They come with Uncle Mike swivel attachments, which are also known for their durability. There are a wide range of colors to pick from, so you can make your own statement. Check out all the products she's made over at her Instagram, SOSGearMT, or her Twitter, at SOSGearMT. You can order a rifle sling of your own at SOSGearMT.com. That's SOSGearMT.com. Yeah, that, that's awesome. So that was your first experience, and, and now you're with the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Uh, where else have you been uh, before, you know, between those two points? Um, let's see, where have I been? Well, in between uh, that, I, I got, uh, you know, when I graduated from undergrad, I thought in – you just went out and, you know, started applying for jobs. And that's certainly what I did. And I could have wallpapered my bedroom with rejection letters. Uh, I always share that with when people ask me, you know, what, what is that? You know, how did you come about with where you are now? And I'm like, well, I was naive and all those other things, but it all kind of worked out. Um, so, yeah, I started applying for jobs with my bachelor's degree and I didn't get any and there was a and of course I was looking for full-time work and a seasonal job came up uh of to catch deer for um you know trapping season which would be from January to March April and then followed up that opportunity to make it a little bit more uh, inviting would be followed up by I could TA uh, a summer camp uh, class. So I put in for that, and lo and behold, I got it. it like I said, it wasn't what I was looking for, but I needed to work. I had, couldn't work it. I couldn't live at home anymore, you know. <laughs> um, got to get out. So that's what I did, and I got that job, and that was in Maryland. So that I had no animal capture experience when I got that job or when I was hired for that job. Um, that Alaska job wasn't, uh, well, it was field work. Um, it wasn't animal handling. I just did observations. So handling an animal, I was completely naive uh, with regard to that and my first weekend down there, we, I had uh, me and this other woman were to capture deer, collar deer, tag deer. We used drop nets, um, and the, we worked for a graduate student. It was his graduate project. We were catching deer for him. And the first weekend we were there, he showed us how to set up a net, and he sat the net that night, and lo and behold, caught deer and you know showed us what we needed to do and when i walked up on that first that first night when there were live deer live deer that i could touch underneath the net again it was one of those things where holy cow what did i get myself into deer were making noise these god awful noises i'd never heard a deer make a noise in my life And I was told when I got to the net, someone called me over and said, sit on this deer. And I said, what? And they said, sit on this deer. And that's what I did. <laughs> you know, and, and me and this, my partner, 
it was awesome. That that was the best field season I've ever had. Uh, we caught deer. If we didn't catch deer, it was a fluke. We caught deer every day. Um, and, you know, we, we used to brag that we had caught the most deer in a season in that particular field site. And I think we still hold the record, but I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so that so I did that for a season and because I was working for a graduate student, he was actually finishing up his project and they were looking for another student and they asked me if I would be interested in doing a project and I said, Yeah. Um I before that I didn't even know about graduate school. Again, I <laughs> Sometimes I wonder how I did get to where I am today. It's very, I had a lot of um, serendipitous moments, so to speak. A lot of good people that came into my life at the right time. Um, and so, yes, that's how I got my, got into graduate school. I had that project. So I caught deer for another two years. And... After that, with my graduate degree, I continued. I worked in Maryland for a couple of years after that on a, on a farm, you know, coordinating their graduate work. And then I went to Minnesota. So, and I worked for the Minnesota DNR for a few years, coordinating their chronic wasting disease program. Hmm? Okay. Um, if, if you could real quick, uh, just, I'm interested, but also tell everyone else out there, how exactly do you set up a drop net to catch deer? Ah, they are, uh, not easy to move. I'll tell you that. It's a giant net, 80, about 80 by 80 square feet. And they are set up post on the, uh, corner posts and big steel posts that so you drive a stake into the ground these corner posts sit over top of them and then these corner posts are anchored there are two anchors to hold it out because of the weight of the net will pull those uh four corner posts in so once you get the corner posts up you get the anchors in, you, they have winches and wire on each corner post, and those hook to the net, and you crank them up. You crank the net up so it's hanging. And there's always a center post because, again, the weight of that net can make it a little bit low, and the deer don't like that. Uh, so you have a center post that kind of props up and, and holds some of that weight of that net. And you put uh, a little bit of bait around in the center of the net around that corner post to get the deer as close from an edge as possible. Because when you trip that net, there are wires that run to each corner that are set on a trigger. And when those wires are pulled, either manually or remotely, uh, it trips those triggers, it drops the four corners of the net. And amazingly enough, deer can run out from underneath that net with that net falling. Uh, no, how how high off the ground is that net, would you say? Um, it They can get pretty high. I mean, they have to be, I have to be able to walk underneath it without touching the net. 
So, and I'm five three, but they're usually higher than that. Um, but not not too much. It just has to be the the deer aren't going to hit it when they walk underneath. So five or six feet off the ground at least. Um, and they they uh. And like I said, it's like, it's not that high and the weight and how it falls is pretty quick. Um, but it is utterly amazing how deer can slip out from underneath them. Yeah, they are extremely fast animals. <laughs> they don't always well, look that fast, but whenever they get spooked, I mean, they can, they can make some ground pretty quick. It, it's unbelievable. We had, um, I had an opportunity. Now I haven't dropped it. I didn't drop net deer since my graduate school days, but I had an opportunity to do it uh, last year. Um, and I sat the net while the rest of the crew sat in the truck and kibitzed. And I waited and dropped the net, and we went down there, and we were um, attending the deer. Because the first thing you do when you have a deer in your in your possession, so to speak, is blindfolded uh, because that visual stimulus is too much for them. Or the minute you, or as soon as you can take that visual stimulus away, uh, the more they calm down. Um, so we were doing that, and there was one deer. I, we had four deer under the net. And there was one deer close to the edge. So the other three were being attended to. I called someone over to help me with that one on, on the edge. And as they bent down to touch the deer that was under the net, it ran away. I was like, <laughs> what just happened? It was, it happened so quick. And that deer was under the net, but right at the corner. And if they find, if their nose can get, isn't in a, a square of that net, and they can scoot, they scoot right out. I was I was very disappointed that, you know, I went from four deer captured to three deer captured that day. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, so what what does daily life, uh, as far as your professional life, what, what does that look like for you? What do you, how do you spend your sort of typical days? Uh, it's not nearly as much fun as it was back in the day, so to speak. Um, <laughs> Well, you know what, as we talked about, you know, what lures you into a particular profession is usually not what that profession is. And, and certainly that is what happened with me. Um, if I could have made a living um, doing field work for the rest of my career, I certainly would have done that. But unfortunately, you, you grow up at some point. Um, and you need a little bit more stability. So field work is usually obviously seasonal because it depends what critter you're working on and what project you're working on. But it's never, you know, year-round, so to speak. And um, so that necessitates these other, you know, basically moving up the food chain uh, in your field, which is what I did. So now, you know, I worked in Minnesota for the DNR out there, and I worked for the Game Commission. It is, uh, I spend a lot of my time behind a computer now uh, because we do a lot of coordination. Sure, we still have research going on, but that research needs to be coordinated. Um, 
and written about and all that sort of stuff. So um, typically, depending on my my day, uh, I'll answer emails and, you know, deal with issues that come up with regard to different projects that I work on and, you know, meetings and this sort of thing. So there isn't a whole lot of that fun aspect anymore. But because we do still have research going on here, I always say this is the upside with regard to being in uh, a non-field tech position now is that I get to pick when I go out in the field. And I always say I'm not picking a day that has bad weather. (laughs) That that would definitely be a plus to uh, being in your position. (laughs) Exactly. So while, you know, the bioaids that we have working on these projects need to be out there every day in all kinds of weather, you know, depending on the season and what's going on and what their duties are, I don't have to be anymore. So I can think and choose my days in the field. Um, so, th- And I have to remember that that's my upside. While I don't get to do it every day, uh, that that is at least one consolation. <laughs> so with that in mind, what what is your favorite part of your job? The favorite part of my job, um, and that's the other thing with regard to, you know, the older I get and, and how jobs evolve over time. Um, even if you're in the same position that you've been in for 10, 20, however many years, the job always does seem to evolve. And my favorite part of my job now is uh, outreach and communication. That's really what I love to do. Uh, And I only really discovered that a few years ago with the Dear Forest blog um, when we started that for this project to try to get the – because that's one thing about research – uh, any kind of research, whether it be medical research or wildlife research or, you know, you name it. Um, research is great, and we can learn a lot from it, but then we publish those results in, you know, peer-reviewed journals, which is, again, wonderful because that allows other people in our field to uh, know what we've done and perhaps learn from it and apply it, you know, to their to their project or whatever facet of life that they're working in. But if you don't work in that field and you don't have any direct connections and you hear about all this research and you don't know what's going on, um, I really like to try to basically translate what we do into what other people can actually relate to. because we, like every profession, we use a lot of jargon and there are, are a lot of um, specific things that relate directly to the wildlife management field that if you're not working in that field, you don't, you don't get it. You know, what in the world does that mean? Um, but to, to make it relatable to everybody, uh, you need to communicate that. And our blog gives us a great vehicle to do that. So that's what I, I really love doing that. And we're going to stop right there for this week. 
We'll pick back up with Janine for the conclusion of of this interview next week. It was really great to have her on and and sort of listen how to how she got to this point in her career. You know the the things that she started out with, uh, and a little bit of uh, what her job entails. Uh, I just want to leave you real quick with uh, please subscribe. Please, uh, if you're listening uh, through iTunes on Apple Podcasts. Uh, or whatever app you're listening to, leave us a rating, leave us a review. Uh, it's definitely gonna something that is going to help us uh, build this podcast. Uh, as always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us uh, on our website, conservewild.org. You can find us on Twitter, at conserve underscore wild. On Instagram, at conserve the wild. Or you can always send us an email, info dot conserve the wild at gmail.com see you next week mm-hmm.